Hello, welcome to the first Post Host podcast. My name is Andrew Perryman, and I'm going to get this fairly serious minded show on the road by talking about hell. Okay, I know this is not a very cheerful topic of conversation, and on the face of it, an odd place to start. It's one of those traditional Christian teachings that just seems so out of place in the modern world, and we're only too aware of how it polarizes opinion. Either we do the stubborn conservative thing and defend the indefensible notion of eternal conscious torment, as a measure perhaps of the blackness of the human heart and a spur to evangelism, or we have to suppose that the fierce apocalyptic language of fire and pain and destruction that we find in the New Testament is really only a bundle of overwrought metaphors for the annihilation of the person at death. The first approach puts God in a rather unpleasant light. The second hardly does justice to the vivid and dramatic language of Jesus and the Apostles. There's clearly something important going on here, and we can't just ignore it, hoping it will go away. So, let me suggest another way of dealing with the matter. The approach I will take is to differentiate between a baseline position and the three prophetic horizons which, to my mind, provide the forward-looking frame of reference for New Testament thought. The method reflects what is for me a key hermeneutical assumption, a basic conviction about how we interpret the texts, which is that the New Testament primarily addresses the condition of peoples and cultures within history, not the destiny of individuals beyond history. If we begin with the theological question of whether hell is a place of infinite torment or just a sort of empty godless nothingness, we will probably miss the whole point. We will misunderstand what is being said in the New Testament about judgment, wrath, punishment and affliction. Ask the wrong questions and we will get the wrong answers. Or to put it another way, if we ask is it about anguish or annihilation, then the answer is yes. Curious? Okay, well let's get on with it. So the starting point is to say that there is a baseline of divine, or we might say existential, judgment on sinful humanity. It takes the simple but decisive form of destruction, which is a serious enough matter by any standard. For individuals, this is the normal destruction of death. As Paul puts it, the wages of sin is death, and it happens to everyone sooner or later. For the first generations of humanity, which had corrupted their way on earth, as we read in Genesis 6, the wages of sin came in the form of the destruction of the flood. Here's verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The regeneration of humanity that followed the flood could then only be described in terms of a new creation. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. But then we see, as the biblical story unfolds, that for societies that defied the Creator, judgment was likely to come in the form of national or collective destruction, famine, disease, war, slaughter, and the ruin of lands and cities. Sometimes death came under shockingly abnormal circumstances. 
The climactic moment in the Old Testament narrative is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and the deportation of a large part of the population into exile, from which ancient Israel never really recovered. This could hardly be dismissed as an accident of history. It had to be understood as an expression of God's anger against his people on account of their faithlessness and disobedience. So that was the message of the prophets. But it was only a matter of time before the godless and murderous empire of the Babylonians would in its turn be brought to nothing. Habakkuk's warning to the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, is a good example. Not least because Paul notes in Romans the prophet's assurance that when all this historical turmoil is going on, the righteous will live by faith. Woe to him who makes his neighbours drink, Habakkuk reproaches Israel's oppressor. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The vivid prophetic language in which these events are described already foreshadows the visions of impending judgment that we find in the New Testament. But it is in Daniel's symbolic account of the clash between the fourth beast of empire and the faithful saints of the Most High, above all in the vision of one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven to receive kingdom and glory, that we have the most potent and resonant and electrifying anticipation of the apocalypticism that will give New Testament thought its distinctive narrative contours. And the point to stress is that in the Old Testament, this language always has reference to historical events seen from the perspective of Israel's unique existence. If we then come across similar language in the New Testament, the assumption ought to be that a similar field of reference is in view. Same words, same imagery, probably the same sort of thing under discussion. If we want to argue that Jesus and his followers were talking not about the rise and fall of nations and empires in history, but about the ceaseless anguish of individuals after death, then we have to give good biblical reasons for this remarkable reapplication or even misapplication of the language, and I don't think we can. They were first century Jews immersed in the Jewish scriptures, deeply concerned about the fate of Israel as a nation. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he saw what was coming. Paul spoke of the intense anxiety he felt regarding his kinsmen according to the flesh. Why would they, without announcing the fact, transpose the historical language of the Old Testament into a new metaphysical key? Now we'll get on to some examples in a moment, but I will say now that I think that the New Testament just makes much better sense if we read it as a direct continuation of the Old Testament narrative about the historical existence of the people of God. This is true, I think, in all respects, but the doctrine of hell is a particularly good example of why we need to get this right. So that was the baseline, which we have sort of split between the final destruction of individuals, which is the inescapable fact of death, and the destruction of peoples and nations in the context of the story of Israel. Now let's look at the three future horizons, eschatological horizons, that I think give narrative structure to the teaching of the New Testament. The first horizon is the war against Rome. 
The language and imagery used to describe the intense suffering that would attend divine judgment in the Synoptic Gospels has reference to the foreseen disaster of the Jewish war. Jesus' essential warning to the Jews is that unless they repent, unless they abandon the road that they are on, they will perish, either struck down by Roman soldiers or crushed under the wreckage of Jerusalem. This is the point of the sayings in Luke 13 about the Galileans killed on the orders of Pilate and the 18 people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. Unless you repent, Jesus says, you will all likewise perish. These tragic events, these small-scale tragic events, prefigured the far greater slaughter and destruction that was to come. But the theological significance of the catastrophe is brought out largely through the reworking of Old Testament motifs. The notorious judgment of Gehenna, for example, is meant to evoke Jeremiah's horrifying prediction that the dead would be thrown from the walls of the city into the valley of the son of Hinnom during the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. The sons of Judah have done evil in God's sight. They have brought idols into the temple. They have sacrificed their children in the valley of the son of Hinnom at a place called Topheth. Jeremiah goes on in chapter 7. Therefore, the days are coming when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. That was Jeremiah talking about events that would happen in the 6th century BC. Now listen to the description of the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans that we find in Josephus' account of the Jewish war. Now the seditious, the leaders of the uprising against Rome, at first gave orders that the dead should be buried out of the public treasury as not enduring the stench of their dead bodies. But afterwards, when they could not do that, they had them cast down from the walls into the valleys beneath. Now Jesus slots right in between these two accounts. He remembers Jeremiah's vision of the devastating impact of the Babylonian invasion, and he foresees the comparable impact of the Roman invasion. The loss of life in the besieged city would be so great that the bodies of the dead would be thrown into Gehenna. And here Gehenna is not a metaphysical post-mortem hell. It is a figure or a metonym, another way of speaking about the wrath to come, as John the Baptist put it. Other images have the same frame of reference. The burning of the weeds by fire at the close of the age in Matthew 13, the discarding of the bad fish, this is a judgment at the end of the age of Second Temple Judaism. The bodies of the unrighteous that are perpetually consumed by worms and fire are not the dead being consciously tormented in hell. They are the very unconscious corpses of those who rebelled against Yahweh, which remained unburied outside the city as a sign to all of the stark reality of God's judgment against his people. Notice that Jesus connects the two Old Testament images in Mark 9. The dead of rebellious Israel will be thrown into the Gehenna Valley outside the city to lie unburied, quote, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In fact, the thought goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 28. It was part of the covenant. Disobedient Israel will be defeated in battle, will become a horror to the kingdoms of the earth, 
and your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for all beasts of the earth, and there shall be none to frighten them away. This would be Israel's hell. Likewise, I suggest that the outer darkness, where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth, is an image of the exclusion of rebellious Israel from the kingdom of God, from the celebration of the restoration of Israel, from the life of the age to come. Wailing typically describes the pained response to judgment in the Old Testament. The gnashing of teeth suggests anger and resentment directed towards the righteous Jew. We read in Psalm 37, for example, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Finally, we must mention the story of the rich man who is tormented in Hades while the beggar Lazarus is carried to the bosom of Abraham, though we can't look at it in detail here. It seems to me that it is best understood as a parable of the reversal of fortune that would accompany the coming crisis of judgment and restoration, when, in the words of the Magnificat, the hungry will be filled with good things and the rich sent empty away. Elsewhere, Hades is the grave or the place of the dead, a grey, lifeless environment beneath the earth. In effect, it is a figure for death. So when Jesus says that the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church, he means simply that the community of his followers will not be overcome by death. There is no reference to a hell teeming with demons as in the mythology of much spiritual warfare teaching. The judgment on Capernaum that it will be brought down to Hades is simply that its population will be destroyed, killed as for example at the time of the Roman invasion. The second horizon is God's judgment of the hostile pagan world. The first horizon of the Jewish war is rather sharply imagined. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Jesus says, then know that its desolation has come near. The more distant second horizon is less well defined. It's naturally hazier. But judgment on the Greek is not less concretely and historically conceived than judgment on the Jew. In general terms, the Greek-Roman world would be judged and would experience tribulation and distress, in Paul's language, on account of its idolatry, sexual immorality and unjust behaviour. This is Paul's argument in the first two chapters of Romans, but I think it's probably best illustrated from the speech that Luke gives him in Athens in Acts 17. The times of ignorance, when God overlooked the idolatry of the ancient world, are coming to an end, he says. God is about to judge that world, the oikumene, the empire more or less, in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. They were living in the twilight of the ancient gods. The expectation takes an especially intense form in Revelation 14, where an angel announces that those who worship the beast of an aggressive pagan imperialism will drink the wine of God's wrath. They will be tormented with fire and sulphur, and the smoke of their torment, it says, goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. It's grim stuff, certainly. But to drink the wine of God's wrath is to be caught up in a historical act of divine judgment. So, to give an example, much like Habakkuk, Isaiah assures the afflicted in ruined Jerusalem that the Babylonians will suffer what they suffered. 
Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors. The fire and sulphur imagery has been taken or adapted from Isaiah's description of God's day of vengeance against Edom in Isaiah 34. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulphur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste, none shall pass through it forever and ever. And the smoke of Edom's destruction would rise forever as a perpetual sign that this was a final judgment on the nation. In the same way, the smoke from the destruction of pagan Rome would rise forever as a perpetual sign of the finality of God's judgment on the whole pagan system, in recompense for the cause of his people. All John has done is highlight the fact that the punishment of Rome would be experienced by real people, by those who worshipped the beast of idolatrous Roman imperialism. What John describes in the vivid symbolic language of the apocalyptic idiom, is the historical punishment of Babylon the Great, pagan Rome, and of those most deeply committed to its beliefs and values. Whatever personal torment was experienced must be understood in this narrative and historical context. The more specific argument in relation to this second horizon is that those who persecuted the churches prior to the victory of Christ over the pagan gods will be punished. When God brings the afflictions of these saints to an end, he will repay with affliction those who afflict you, Paul says. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Again, this is not envisaged as a final judgment at the end of history, but as a day within history when Jesus will be revealed as the one who judges the pagan world and his followers vindicated and rewarded for having patiently endured suffering. The sheep and goats judgment in Matthew 25 has the same event in view. When the Son of Man comes to be publicly vindicated and acclaimed as Lord, the nations which failed to attend to the needs of his persecuted disciples will be judged and consigned to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels like the stream of fire that issued from the throne of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, this is a fire that destroys empires and cultures which defy the Creator God. Individuals will, of course, suffer the consequences of what happens to their world, but this is not the level at which the apocalyptic story is being told. The third horizon is the final renewal of heaven and earth. It is simply a recognition of the force of historical perspective to say that the authors of the New Testament were far more interested in the first two horizons than in the third. Nevertheless, the storyline of the Creator who persistently recreates, which begins with the blessing of Noah, culminates in John's exceptional vision of a new heaven and a new earth. This is the final good towards which all things are moving. But at this climactic moment, we also get a final iteration, a final ratification of that baseline argument that the inescapable consequence of sin is death. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. 
Those whose names are not written in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. And John says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is not a place of torment, merely of symbolic incineration. It is a final destruction of everything that is contrary to the goodness of creation. So my argument, to sum up, is that there is no suffering after death in Scripture. There is no hell as it has traditionally been understood. What we have is the destruction of humanity at death because that is what it means to be descended from Adam. But what preoccupied the biblical writers and Jesus himself was not the fate of isolated individuals, but the fate of people groups at critical moments in history, cities, nations, cultures, empires. In the ancient world, the destruction of a city or nation was likely to entail great suffering or torment. War was hellish. But this was a suffering that ended in death. It was not a torment inflicted after death. Thank you for listening.